Good morning and welcome to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Connor Fraser. Beyond the Headlines is a weekly current affairs show that aims to make public policy discussions more accessible to you. We take you beyond the headlines of our daily news, bringing you access to current leaders through in-depth interviews. You can join us in the conversation by tweeting at beyond underscore headlines. That's B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. Throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, businesses across many sectors of the economy have found it increasingly difficult to find workers. According to Statistics Canada, the unemployment to job vacancy ratio reached a historic low of 1.4 in June 2022 amidst a record tight labor market. In particular, significant impacts have been felt within the healthcare and social assistance, construction and manufacturing sectors. Today, we unpack the causes and consequences of Canada's labor supply crisis. What, if anything, can be done to improve the situation? Moreover, our guest, Sean Spear, outlined in a recent white paper entitled The Urgent Case for a Supply Rebuild, Investing in a New Economic Compact for Canada, that we are facing a broader supply shortage, for example, related to the supply of energy, housing, and ideas. The latter part of our discussion addresses the rationale for government involvement in a broader supply rebuild. What is the role of government and what are the long-term consequences of inaction? As I alluded to, our guest today is Sean Spear. Sean is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy and a project director at Ontario 360. Additionally, Sean is Public Policy Forum's Scotiabank Fellow in Strategic Competitiveness and luckily for us, the faculty advisor of Beyond the Headlines. He has previously served in different roles for the federal government, including as a senior economic advisor to the prime minister. Sean has written extensively about federal policy issues, including taxes and government spending, retirement income security, social mobility and economic competitiveness. And Sean holds a master's in history from Carleton University in Ottawa. And joining me now, Sean, uh, good morning. How are you? I'm just fine, Connor. Thank you so much for having me on the program. It's a great honor. Mm -hmm. And thank you for being able to join um, on short notice. So to, to kick us off, I wanted to ask, uh, you know, Canadians are, are aware that there is a labor shortage, but we might be less aware of the causes. Can you walk us through in your mind, what are the main causes of the imbalance between the demand and supply in the labor market right now? Yeah, the, the easy answer would be to say it's simply a matter of demographics. You know, that is to say, uh, uh, listeners will know that our our population is aging. Um, the baby boomers are increasingly re retiring um, and uh, they're not being replaced um, one for one with new people entering the workforce. I think most listeners will be familiar with that story. I, I think that it's fair to say that's the principal cause of of. Uh, these, this question of labor shortage, but in your introduction, I, I thought you were you were wise, uh, Connor, to to raise the issue that the labor shortages are manifesting themselves in different sectors in different ways, um, and and I think that's because in addition to the foundational challenge of aging demographics and what that means for the workforce, so there are then uh, unique or acute issues in particular parts of the economy. And that can uh, be the result of various factors. You know, take uh, healthcare, for instance. I think one of the challenges for, um, that has led to human resource issues in the healthcare sector is one, we've not trained enough healthcare uh, professionals. Um, in the province of Ontario, where we both are, for instance, there's been um, restrictions on the number of doctors that um, universities can train. And that weren't, that those restrictions, which I think were mostly introduced in the name of uh, fiscal constraint, are, are now manifesting themselves in the system. Um, so that's, a, that's a, an example where, in addition to the underlying challenge of aging demographics, we have a particularistic uh, uh, cause of why we've seen um, a, a supply crunch when it comes to doctors and, and nurses and so on. And then related, there is the ongoing problem, uh, which again, I think listeners would be familiar with, 
of um of the inability for newcomers um to uh fully maximize their human capital um because of foreign credential recognition issues within the uh within the Canadian labor market so um you know think for instance of an internationally trained doctor whether it's um a, a, an immigrant to the country or whether it's a Canadian who went abroad um to study and has now come home and he or she uh is is facing impediments to uh to using their credentials and their skills and address helping us address um the the supply shortage when it comes to doctors or nurses or other 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 occupations and that's been a, a problem or an issue that we've talked about collectively for some time and while there's been some progress uh uh it continues to be uh, an ongoing problem and, and an increasingly acute one as we face um, uh, this challenge of, of labor shortage. Let me just raise one more point, Connor, and then I'll, I'll stop rambling at you. Uh, the, the last thing I'll say is um, there are groups within our economy, Connor, whose labor force participation rate uh, is below the national average. So if you think about it this way, we're facing this secular challenge of aging demographics and we're going to need to kind of maximize the skills and experience and human capital of everyone in our economy. And yet, um, uh, Indigenous Canadians, persons with disabilities, and others uh, remain on the sidelines. I mean, not only is that uh, an economic challenge for those individuals, of course, um, because they're not benefiting from the financial and, and non-financial uh, uh, upsides of fully participating in the economy but of course it it has uh, broader macro implications as well so i guess that's a very long way of saying you know if i had to rank them i'd say number one aging demographics uh number two um some of the unique or particularistic issues in different sectors or different occupations three uh the ongoing challenges of fully leveraging the skills and credentials of of newcomers and then finally I think we need an agenda to, 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 to try to pull those groups that for too long have been underrepresented in our economy into the labor market, um, both to the benefit of them and to the benefit of, of the Canadian economy as a whole. So I want to I want to pick up on a couple things you mentioned there. Obviously, the biggest trend that you identified is aging demographics supplemented by these other secondary issues of underparticipation by certain groups and these sort of systemic structural barriers preventing people uh, that come to Canada with accreditations from joining the workforce. And, and also this, this issue of cost cutting, which has led to uh, a lack of supply of healthcare professionals from institutions. Do you, do you think, just ignoring the, the demographic trend, if we were to resolve all of those other issues and increase, uh, you know, the part, maximize the participation of people within Canada right now in the labor force, we would be able to, you know, sufficiently resolve this crisis to a level that would be satisfactory for everyone, ignoring the demographics, or is the, the demographic problem just so large that this is going to be, you know, a very, a very long-term painful resolution? Well, let me say a couple of things in response to your, your good question, uh, Connor. The, the first is to directly answer it. I think even in the event that we made progress on some of these secondary factors, they, it would still, we would still be facing um, an issue of job vacancies and so on because the, the, um, the demographic issue is just so overwhelming. But the, the second point I'd raise is you've characterized it in, in primarily negative terms. And obviously, um, there are negative effects of a supply-demand disequilibrium um, in our labor market. Think of the negative effects of a supply-demand disequilibrium when it comes to, for instance, um, a child children's Tylenol. We're, we're seeing that manifest itself. So, you know, just at a level, when supply and demand are, aren't in alignment, there are consequences. But... I, I actually think um, this period of sustained labor shortages that we're entering is kind of an, an interesting and exciting uh, time for, for two reasons. The, the, the first is um, Canada 
I don't know if you know this, Connor, or if listeners know this. Canada's baby boom was amongst the largest, if not the largest, in the world. Um, you know, we had been uh, protected from the devastation of World War II, for instance. Um, you know, we come out of the war with a buoyant economy. Um, you know, listeners will know that prior to the war, we had had this sustained period of depression where birth rates were relatively low, immigration was low, etc. So we we have this massive glut of labor enter the economy. Um, and it the consequence is we run for like 40 years uh, a labor market in which uh, employers have the upside of more workers than jobs. And that creates a kind of power imbalance whereby, uh, whereby employers have uh, a, a kind of advantage relative to workers. We're about to enter a period where that flips, where workers are going to have increasing market power because uh, there's few of them and there's a lot of jobs to fill. I think that's kind of healthy. It should put upward pressure on wages. It should uh, in conceptually and give uh, employees the ability to insist on um, non-financial changes to their workplace, whether that's more uh, training or technology or just uh, more benefits or workplace conditions or whatever. So um, there, there are, I don't want to diminish the, the potential economic effects, at, particularly in the short term, but in the long term, uh, this pretty fundamental kind of structural change in our labor market uh, should be good for workers. Just one more point along these lines. It also should be good for productivity, Connor, because in the event that employers are, are, are operating in a labor market in which employees or workers have this um, power advantage, workers will, or employers rather, will be forced to make two choices. Fill a vacancy with a worker who now may be able to insist on higher wages and more benefits and so on than he or she might have, um, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, or replace that worker with some form of technology, right? Um, uh, which has been something that Canadian firms have been slower to do than a lot of our, a lot of peers, which is one of the reasons that Canada has uh, one of the worst productivity records amongst um, advanced economies. So I guess that's, again, a very long way of saying I apologize. That, um, that a period of sustained labor shortages should, on one hand, boost the bargaining power of workers and, and put upward pressure on wages, and second, create the conditions whereby employers uh, uh, are investing more in technology and, and boosting the productivity per worker. That's a kind of interesting dynamic that I think has really significant political economy consequences that I think probably goes a bit um, under discussed when we talk about these issues. I, I read recently an article by Chris Reagan in Policy Options. It was an older article from 2010, but basically what he said is what, what you said at the beginning, how the baby boom allowed Canada's GDP uh, to grow so significantly in the post-war years, just based alone on you know, the supply of workers and now that that supply has shrunk, we're really, you know, we really have to rely on productivity growth per worker to drive our economy. And before we continue, I just wanted to remind for those who tuned in, uh, you're listening to Beyond the Headlines. We're a weekly public affairs talk show that airs every Monday, <clears throat> sorry, every Monday at 11 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 in Toronto, online through our website and across, across podcast platforms. This week, we're discussing the labor shortage within Canada, as well as the broader challenges associated with building out the supply side of the economy in the face of new global risks. If you've enjoyed the conversation, send us a tweet at beyond underscore headlines. And if you have suggestions or feedback, take a moment to complete our survey at www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash feedback. Sean, I wanted to touch on something that you mentioned about how this moment is seeing a, a shift in power away from employers back to workers because there there is just simply more workers than uh, or, or more more jobs than there are workers. So 
what does this moment uh, imply about long-term inflation with our economy and are traditional tools to manage inflation such as the bank of canada's monetary policy going to be able to control that long-term inflation i i should preface my answer connor by saying um issues of inflation monetary policy are a bit above my pay grade uh but i i know i i think you know, I think what economic theory would tell us is that um, rising wages for workers because of that labor market dynamic that you described in your question shouldn't necessarily be inflationary because it will probably, it, it will manifest itself on both sides of the consumer equation, right? It would, in theory, lead to higher prices, but it would also lead to higher purchasing power. Um, and so it need not be inflationary. I suppose where it could become inflationary is if somehow um, we didn't see a requisite increase in wages and purchasing power. Um, but most economic theory would, would, would suggest that that need not be the case. I guess, though, maybe just to, to build on your question, uh, I've said a few times in this answer, in my previous answer, um, um, that this is a, we're relying mostly on theory or, or conceptual models to think about uh, this change in supply of workers and demand uh, uh, um, in jo from in jobs. Um, what we're seeing uh, on the part of employers, uh, particularly large business organizations in the country, is um, demands on the federal government to increase immigration, particularly temporary foreign workers, um, um, to help address the quote unquote labor shortage issues. And it, you know, it that may be a necessary, particularly kind of short-term stopgap as we deal with some of these structural issues in the economy to pull more people in from the outside, from you know, from those who are some of those underrepresented groups that we talked about earlier. But the kind of cynic would say, Connor. Um, that that these calls for more temporary foreign workers, what they're really trying to do is, in effect, uh, blunt or undermine that change in the the relative power of workers in this new labor market dynamic. In other words, employers are observing um, that the power imbalance has shifted, and they're effectively trying to kind of flood the zone with temporary foreign workers to erode or undermine the a bargaining power gains that workers um, ought to make. You know, to the extent that that's successful, it may change the way in which theory uh, would tell us um, that uh, that uh, a, a new labor market dynamic, uh, 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 the, the outcomes that a new labor market labor labor market dynamic ought, ought to produce. In that sense, I do think it is important for governments. Um, of course, to continue to advance ambitious um, immigration policies, and we're seeing that out of Ottawa. But uh, here's where um, the composition matters a great deal, Connor. Um, uh, I uh, host a podcast myself um, called Hub Dialogues, and, and this week, uh, the, the week we're speaking today on December 2nd, uh, I interviewed a, a Waterloo University economist named Mikhail Scuderud, and he raised concerns um, that um, we're seeing a kind of shift in the composition uh, of, of Canadian immigration policy such that we're bringing in a, a growing share of quote unquote low-skilled workers. Um, and Scooterud's concern is that, um, is that that's going to undermine the bargaining power of low-skilled workers here in the country. Um, and those are the ones who, who we ought to be um, most um, um, determined to see this shift in bargaining power and upward pressure. I, I remember also, just to, to build on what you said there recently, the government passed some measure which allowed students who are here temporarily working within Canada to increase their working hours. And I was reading some articles where the students almost felt taken advantage of because now that their employers knew that they were able to work for longer, they basically said, you need to stay at your jobs or else we're going to fire you. And so it really has the effect of 
of extracting much more value uh, from these people, almost taking advantage of them. And there's other countries where you see this, this happening anecdotally in places like Singapore, the economy relies on a huge supply of uh, very low, low wage workers from surrounding countries and it has massive implications for inequality. And I hope Canada isn't going down that road. Looking at the, 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 what has been done to address this issue until now over the past say 10 or 20 years, because we, we've known that our population is going to be aging. Uh, it's, you know, it's not, nothing, nothing new. People have written articles on this for, for decades, but have we sufficiently been addressing these issues? Do you think the government has almost dropped the ball or would you characterize it differently? No, I, I think there's an argument. This isn't a comment about any particular government because as you say, these are longer term trends. I think it's almost a consequence of human psychology in, in the sense, Connor, that, as you say, the demographic pressures are arithmetic. You know, we know they're happening. Um, you know, it's one of the most predictable changes in our economy and society that, that, um, that we could possibly face. But at times it's disrupted by uh, short-term scenarios um, that causes us to look at the labor market in a traditional way. So let me be concrete about this. Um, you know, we're talking about job vacancies and labor shortages, and then suddenly we have a global financial crisis and we have an unemployment spike that kind of looks like uh, a labor market that we faced at the, you know, in the 60s and 70s and 80s uh, when we were operating in a world in which the, you know, all things being held constant, we had more supply of workers than we had jobs. And then we get through the kind of unemployment spike, the short-term spike of the global financial crisis, and there's renewed focus on the long-term trend of labor shortages and so on. And then we have a global pandemic in which we see, again, a short-term spike in unemployment and a conversation about labor market issues and labor market policy um, that loses sight of this broader kind of secular trend. Um, so I, I think it's this kind of tension between short-term and long-term that partly explains why we've, um, we've probably not um, taken the necessary steps um, to better position ourselves to deal with the long-term trend. You know, we've talked earlier about the need for increasing the number of, you know, simple things like increasing the number of doctors we train every year. Um, you know, there's been some debate uh, about whether we ought to adjust um, the, the eligibility age for our retirement income security programs like old age security. Um, um, and that's, I'm afraid, not happened. Um, we've had uh, um, ongoing issues with, uh, in the skilled trades, for instance, where the uh, consequences of aging demographics are manifesting themselves even more starkly now because it's a sector or, or, or a set of of occupations where, um, where fewer new young people are, are actually entering them. So we're gonna, it, it almost in a way, the skilled trades are like the canary of the coal mine for what this demographic change is gonna look like in other parts of the economy. It's just happened sooner. So I, I guess that's a long way of saying, I don't think we've prepared adequately, um, but I, I, I think part of it is because at different times over the past decade or so, as you framed it, we've had these short-term shocks that kind of take our eye off the ball, so to speak. Sean, I wanted to circle back to something that you mentioned before, which is the role that automation can play to help ease this crisis. So there's obviously, we could increase the supply of workers through all these these various means by increasing you know the, the the number of doctors that graduate from our universities by reducing the barriers to uh, of new canadians to joining skilled trades that they're qualified for through immigration but automation can also play a critical role um is it has the government done enough to to facilitate that, do you think, that, uh, in, in, in what ways could Canada really stimulate 
uh, the, the role that automation could, could potentially play in, in helping to resolve this crisis? Hmm. That's a good question. Economic theory, of course, would tell us that there probably need not be a role for government, you know, in the sense that employers should, when faced with, you know, think about it this way, I, this is a bit wonky, but use the word rent. So this is a wonky podcast. Uh, you know, listeners, those listeners who've studied economics will know that conceptually labor and capital are, are substitutable for one another, right? So you can either fill a, a, a role with, with, a, with a worker, or you can, you can fill a function with technology. And, you know, one way to think about it, Connor, for, you know, the better part of the past 40 years or whatever, because we've had uh, this labor market surplus, employers have been inclined to fill those roles with labor, with labor not capital. Um, and that has been a kind of logical business decision in the sense that labor is cheaper than capital, especially when you have a surplus of it. As we start to have, as that surplus draws down and we actually have fewer workers than jobs, it's going to drive up the cost of labor. And the theory would tell us that employers may be more inclined to then substitute for capital, which is basically a fancy word for technology or automation. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, that suggests that the role for government may not, may not need to be that significant in the sense that it, it should be a, a natural reaction or response by employers. I do think there's probably a couple things that, that governments can and ought to do. You know, one, uh, Connor, is use the bully pulpit. Uh, you know, I think it's oftentimes underestimated the importance of uh, of governments, of politicians, kind of talking about and framing issues. Um, and so you'll know that there was this narrow, this persistent narrative, not just in Canada, really around uh, the Western world in the last decade or so about how robots were going to steal our jobs. <laughs> um, and I think that has made a lot of people fearful about automation and the growing use of technology in the workplace, you know, think of when you go to McDonald's or something like that. And instead of purchasing your food from a, a, a person working at a till, you're using a, a um, you know, a screen. Um, and, and I think people then start to kind of extrapolate from that. We're all going to be replaced by uh, screens. And that's obviously not correct. In fact, it's quite the opposite that um, given the labor market issues we've talked about, um, uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for workers who uh, want to, um, who, 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 who are interested in, in want to get in, involved in the labor market. You know, in other words, robots aren't a threat. Robots are our are, are, are friends in a way in this context. So I think even just dispelling the idea that automation is somehow a threat um, uh, would be a, a useful thing for politicians to, to do. The, the, the second thing is, um, you know, there might be some need for, um, you know, training programs because uh, or, or support for businesses who, you know, in adopting technology, then need to do um, some training for their workforce so that they can kind of maximize the benefits of technology. You know, maybe there's a role for public policy um, there. There, there, uh, there may be a role for public policy for people who, um, who, who, um, want to climb the, the kind of skill ladder. So if you think about it this way, Connor, we have low skill jobs, mid skill jobs and high skill jobs. And I won't go into great detail, but basically different organizations, including Statistics Canada, um, use different methodologies to classify the labor market that way. And in a best case scenario, what we would see is people who are presently in low skilled occupations replaced with technology and those individuals kind of climbing up the ladder into higher paying, better mid-skilled jobs. That's, you know, that's a perfect scenario uh, for dealing with this issue. But those people might need some support um, in order to, to climb that occupational ladder. So th those might be ways for, um, for public policy to kind of help with the adoption of technology and then the, the kind of secondary consequences of growing adoption and technology. But 
But just to make one final point, you know, because I don't think it can be emphasized enough, the growing use of technology in the workplace to deal with these with these issues ought to boost productivity per worker, um, and in turn make us richer. And I don't mean kind of collectively richer in the sense that you know uh, employers are going to suddenly be producing more profits and so on. I mean that's that's probably true as well. But economic theory tells us that even workers ought to benefit from that kind of transition. So it, it's not something to be scared of. It's something actually to kind of um, lean into. So if I understand you correctly, you, you, you're saying in this transition towards automation, you see a reduced role for government. The impetus is almost on the private sector to take the cue that you know, the cost of labor is increasing. Now it's time for us to make investments that are largely going to benefit uh, employers, they need to make the investment in technology and stop looking to the government for a handout or for a bailout or, or what have you. And I wonder if the, the, I guess the effort, the recent effort to increase the supply of low wage workers, if, if it's temporarily or if that increases and stays long term, how much that is going to drag businesses and prevent them from investing in technology and automation uh, it's a great question yeah exactly right like if you come back to my kind of wonky point that labor and capital are substitutes um then the the secular market forces ought to push employers in the direction of investing more in capital that's just kind of what economic theory tells us but you're right if we see a sustained influx of of low-skilled workers um, that in effect kind of distorts how employers think about the trade-offs between labor and capital. It may um, delay or even defer um, um, that kind of shift from labor to capital. And I think that may be needed in the short term. It may be needed in particular sectors. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be... Um, completely closed-minded here. Um, but I, I do think it, you know, I do think it's something that we need to be cognizant of. I mentioned the interview I did with Mikhail Scuderud uh, um, uh, this week, Connor. You know, one anecdote he used is um, wine production or, or um, in some countries where they have a large supply of low-skilled labor, like in the United States, because of undocumented workers and so on a lot of that production is done by people. If you go to other parts of the world um, where there, there isn't a healthy supply of low-skilled labor, where the choice for employers is either pay people you, you know, middle-class wages or however one describes it, or invest in technology, they've made the, the latter decision. And so um, it's an example of how, in practice, economic theory sort of manifests itself. And, uh, and so I think, I think the government needs to be really intentional about how it thinks about these issues for different sectors and different, you know, there may be an ongoing need for um, a, a large supply of temporary foreign workers, of low-skilled workers in parts of the agricultural economy, at least in the short term, where the cost of capital trans transformation is quite expensive, or, you know, maybe the technology isn't quite um, um, scalable or, or, or whatever. Um, but I think that those should be the, um, that those should be kind of aberrations and the norm should be to per permit the labor market to do what markets do, which is to present employers with these choices, um, and uh, enable them to decide what's best for them in their respective um, business. Uh, be, before we, we move on, I wanted to just, uh, so because you wrote this great report uh, recently and I wanted to get into a discussion about the report, but I just wanted to summarize something you said that that really struck me and, and kind of connect a couple of these points. People might have a tendency to think that automation is bad. They have this perception that automation, you know, is gonna take their jobs 
and, and steal their future, but maybe there's a role for government to play to dampen those, um, dampen those expectations. And, and, and in a sense, automation can really help decrease inequality in our society, because if you think it's going to automate away all of the low skill, low wage jobs that are, you know, a lot of people are currently just scraping by on and then if there are these training policies to help people move the social ladder, in theory, everyone else after the fact should be better because automation is taking taking away the source of inequality, and then um, and then everyone that's left is going to be theoretically working in a in, in a better place. Yeah, well, well said, Connor. Um, you know, I mentioned the classification of low skilled, built skilled, and high skilled jobs in the labor market. Um, one of the reasons that we do that kind of categorization is it enables us to see where where workers are concentrated, if that makes sense. And what's interesting, Connor, is um, over the past quarter century or so, most Western countries, including Canada, have experienced something called job polarization. So if you think about the old like mid 20th century economy, a goods producing economy, most of the jobs were kind of concentrated in roughly the middle. Um, it was, uh, and, and what we've seen through the shift from a goods producing economy to a services economy or knowledge-based economy is increasing bifurcation. So um, the most increase in the share of the overall labor force has occurred at the bottom and at the top. And the, the middle of the labor market has seen a relative decline. Um, and so, you know, it seems to me, even kind of independent of this conversation, you know, a, a fundamental goal of public policymaking in, you know, the coming years ought to be creating the new middle, so to speak, uh, in a service or knowledge economy. How do we pull um, those up the ladder and create it in a, you know, because maybe put this, if I can be concrete about it, like in the 20th century, the quintessential mid-skilled occupation was manufacturing, right? Uh, you you didn't need a post-secondary credential, but you could you, if you got a manufacturing job, you basically could sustain a middle-class lifestyle for for you and your family. Well, as a share of employment, manufacturing is now quite low, and the consequence, in addition to kind of other trends, is this is this tendency towards job polarization. We're not going to restore the in relative importance of manufacturing. Uh, so what's it going to be like, what is going to be the source of the modern middle class? And a big part of that is, as you say, pulling people up the ladder from low skilled occupations to mid skilled occupations. Um, and if we can do that, uh, you know, it's going to have a bunch of consequences, but I think you're right. It's actually, it, it could result in lower inequality rates, um, because we've replaced the so-called vanishing middle, um, and, and uh, but to do that, you know, the, the functions that people in low skilled occupations provide are, are enormously important. I don't want to diminish them at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in fact, during the pandemic, of course, they were oftentimes deemed essential and the rest of us weren't. Um, so it, it's crucial that we, um, that we uh, through a combination of rising wages and, uh, and the adoption of technology, we sort of push those functions and those people up the ladder. And, um, and that's why I kind of come back to my initial point. Um, the transition from labor surplus to labor shortages is gonna be bumpy. I don't want to diminish that, but, but we're entering what ought to be one of the most exciting periods of political economy that we've seen in a long time um, that should be good for, for, for workers. And, and so I'm, I'm gathering you envision a role for public policy is helping to redefine the new middle of our economy, which will be higher than before. And this, I think this makes sense from, you know, this, this acknowledges that our activities over the past, you know, decade or century are creating value by enabling more wealth, um, more, um, you know, utility. Now, now our society is progressing towards uh, you know, a more a more equal state, a more equitable 
And we have a situation where the majority of people are going to be pulled, hopefully, into jobs that are, you know, more fulfilling, that pay more. Um, and I, I just, before we continue, I just want to re remind uh, our listeners that Beyond the Headlines airs on CIUT 89.5 FM, which is a nonprofit community radio station. Your contribution is needed to enable Beyond the Headlines and all of the other programs on CIUT to continue uh, continue delivering the stuff that you love. So visit www.beyondtheheadlines.net slash donate and please give generously. Uh, this week, we are discussing the labor shortage within Canada and, and our guest, Sean Spear. We're also going to talk about his work to define a new economic paradigm centered around building out Canada's capacity uh, to supply a whole range of goods beyond labor, such as energy, housing, ideas. And on that note, uh, returning back to the conversation, Sean, you wrote uh, about a month ago, this report came out um, that you co-authored with Edward Greenspan entitled The Urgent Case for a Supply Rebuild, Investing in a New Economic Compact for Canada, where you argue that Canada is facing a broader supply crisis. So until now, we've just been talking exclusively about the labor's labor shortage with Canada, but you wrote this paper which sort of takes it beyond just the, the labor uh, shortage. Can you introduce us to the main thesis of your paper? Yeah, thanks for, um, thanks for drawing attention to it, Connor. Um, you know, I'll try to be as brief as I can. I, I know I've been a bit long-winded in our conversation today. Um, maybe just make two quick points. Um, the, the first is, you know, one insight that Ed and I had is that um, one of the reasons our politics feels a bit unsteady and chaotic in Canada and elsewhere around um, the Western world is that we've kind of been operating without an ideational framework uh, for some time. We didn't realize it necessarily, but it's become increasingly evident. You know, that is to say, in the aftermath of World War II, governments around the Western world were basically rooted in what's sometimes described a Keynesian consensus, the mixed economy model, that was like a, a bit of a blueprint for how to think about economic, economic policymaking and the relative role of, of markets and governments. That framework started to kind of malfunction in the mid-1970s for various reasons. Um, you know, probably overreached kind of you know, excesses of, of state intervention and so on, we end up with a stagflation crisis. You know, that is to say the persistence of in, in parallel high unemployment and high inflation, which was supposed to not be um, possible at the same time. Um, and we start to see the rise of a successor um, economic paradigm. Uh, you know, in 1974, uh, the libertarian economist Frederick Hayek wins the Nobel Prize, I think in 76, uh, Milton Friedman wins the Nobel Prize by 79, Margaret Thatcher's elected by 80, Ronald Reagan's elected, and we're off to the races with a new framework um, that, you know, one might describe as the Washington Consensus, others might describe as neoliberalism, but it, it you know, basically sort of reset the relationship between markets and the state, and again, became a, a pretty overwhelmingly adhered to consensus from, you know, Tony Blair's labor market. Labour Party government in the UK to um, John Cretchen's uh, liberal government in Canada to you know Bill Clinton in the US or Bill George Bush in the US it really kind of went from um, the sort of center left to the to the center right and I think in hindsight the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the onset of the global financial crisis um, amounted to the end of that paradigm that it two started to malfunction in part because the financial deregulation, which was inspired, you know, by neoliberal thinking, um, helped to uh, precipitate and exacerbate um, the, uh, the financial crisis. And so um, it's a very long way of saying that, um, you know, what we're hoping to do is, in effect, fill this gap that we've been living with for, you know, almost a, a decade or longer um, it, it, to establish a, a, a new paradigm that can find um, 
broad-based support, again, from the kind of moderate left, the moderate right, that says that in effect kind of almost as a synthesis of the two that, um, you know, tries to correct for the excesses of the mixed economy model, um, but sees a greater role for government than the, the neoliberal model. And the basic idea is that, uh, which I guess comes to my second point just quickly, is that for the better part of the past decade, public policy has focused mostly on the demand side of the economy. Um, we've seen, um, you know, uh, uh, low in, low interest rates to try to boost um, demand. We've seen a mix of tax and transfer policies, including an emphasis on redistribution, all with the goal of trying to kind of buck up um, household purchasing power and uh, demand in our economy. And we think it's there's a need to sort of shift the orientation from public policy from the demand side to the supply side. And we belong to a kind of growing movement of, of voices and organizations around the kind of Anglo-American world um, advancing this idea. Your listeners are probably familiar with Ezra Klein, the New York Times columnist who's written about what he calls supply side progressivism. There's a guy named Derek Thompson at The Atlantic who's coined this agenda, the abundance agenda. Um, uh, there are various other voices and various other ways to describe what we call the supply rebuild. But I guess just in a nutshell, it has two purposes. One, to fill this intellectual or paradigmatic void that we've been living with in Canada and elsewhere. And two, um, to, to kind of catalyze and unblock the supply of housing, healthcare, biomedical innovation, intellectual property ideas, people, et cetera, that we think we're going to need um, in, the, in the coming uh, decades to both uh, advance our economic goals, um, but also advance other goals that we have, including with respect to the climate. I, I wanted to zero in on something you said, how this, this policy that you're advocating for of rebuilding the supply side of our economy can, it has something in it for both people on the left and the right. So if I'm a conservative, what what is in this for me? Why would I see myself in this? And if I'm a progressive or someone who's more liberal-minded, why would I be able to support this? It's a great question. Um, you know, one way to think about it, uh, Connor, is that boosting supply in our economy will require governments to think about public policy in two ways. The first way is um, a catalytic role. So, you know, you've done some serious thinking and writing about um, new technologies with respect to climate change. Um, though a lot of those technologies don't, you know, themselves, at least at this point, have a market basis or a market case. Um, they reflect broader political or, or, or collective goals like the net zero target. And so um, there's a role for government to help catalyze private investment in those areas that wouldn't happen on its own because, um, because the market can't quite get its head around why we ought to be uh, dedicating scarce resources to those ends. And so that catalytic active role um, of boosting supply is the part of this agenda um, for which progressives ought to see themselves. The second role for public policy is, is what I describe as the unblocking role, that um, one of the reasons we've in, we're facing this a dearth of supply in different parts of our economy, think housing, for instance, um, is in large part because uh, policy choices, some well-intended, um, in fact, many well-intended, have come to represent a break on the market's ability to produce the supply we need. You know, you're probably familiar with lit research on um, stringent land use regulations or development fees or density tar, whatever. There's, there's a host of, of policy choices we've made for better or for worse that have come to impede the market's ability to produce enough houses to bring supply and demand into, into equilibrium. You know, the same applies to healthcare where we've discovered through the pandemic, we have fewer ICU beds um, per population than a lot of our peer jurisdictions and even some who aren't, you know, you wouldn't necessarily characterize as our peers. So that's that unblocking role. Um, you know, it seems to be is where 
conservatives ought to be able to see themselves. I'm just noting the time here and we have about five minutes left and I, I still have so many questions left, but um, which makes me very sad, but one, one question I, I think would be stimulating to, to end on is just to talk about the role that geopolitics has played in motivating this report. We know that the, the federal government, some ministers have recently been talking about friendshoring or you know, reshoring uh, strategic activities back to Canada or back amongst our allies. This can almost be seen as a, a motivation to increase the supply of, of certain goods that have been outsourced to other, other countries. So from your perspective, what, what role what has been the role of geopolitics in motivating the ideas you put forward in this yeah, report? Great, great question. Um, a big part. It's it's at the backdrop of of this analysis that for a long time, you know, we basically permitted markets to decide um, where the production of of um, goods and products um, would occur across the the, the global economy, and um, you know, there's this famous line that's it's sort of apocryphal. It's attributed to Michael Boskin, who was George H.W. Bush's chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, you know, in the like late 80s, early 90s. And apparently he said, Connor, um, computer chips, potato chips, what's the difference? Um, that if the market decided that the U.S. was going to produce potato chips, then that's what the market decided. And if it decided it was going to produce computer chips, then, then that was fine, too. But there was really no role for policy or government to uh, preference one or the other. And I think, you know, I saw you smile uh, when I said that. It's because it's self-evident. Any listener would, would like instinctively say, of course, we ought to be producing computer chips over potato chips not just because they're higher economic value, although of course they are, um, but computer chips have massive national security implications, right? Like our entire militaries operate off computer chips. And so if we permit computer chip production to go to, you know, to be dominated by say China or Russia or something like that, it wouldn't just have negative economic effects. It could put our societies at risk. And so I, I think, you know, one of the insights of the Supply Rebuild, the paper um, that we've written with Ed Greenspan, that I've written with, with Ed Greenspan for the Public Policy Forum, is a recognition that, um, that yes, we have economic interests and we need to be cognizant of those as we design our, our policies. Um, but we also have other broader interests. And so, for instance, um, you know, if you want to do an energy transition, something I know you've thought a lot about, um, you know, it's we're probably going to be impeded if we're relying entirely on China for the critical minerals in order to facilitate um, that kind of of transition. And so, you know, I think we have a collective interest, um, including with the United States, in order to um, uh, establish a greater degree of self sufficiency in that area. Um, you know, I could go on with other examples, but I guess the key point is. Um, the paper is, is, is written in, in part with uh, an idea in mind, and that idea is the return of uh, what's sometimes described as geoeconomics, the interconnectedness between economic policy and, and geopolitics. It's something that was kind of lost, I think, at, during the, the period of neoliberalism, where we sort of put our, all of our uh, 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 confidence in the ability of markets to decide efficiently where uh, things should be made. And I think what you're seeing now is a recognition that, yeah, you know, that's probably the way to go in most cases. You know, we don't have an interest, a geopolitical interest in the ability to produce t-shirts in Canada, but we probably have a geopolitical interest in the ability to produce vaccines here or critical minerals necessary for um, electric vehicle production or, um, or computer chips, which are necessary to fuel our economy and our militaries. And, you know, you can start to go down the list and, and hopefully be able to distinguish between what I would describe as strategic or critical productive capacities and others where we, yeah, we absolutely should um, leave those to the allocation of, of the market. So I, I'm getting the sense uh, from your answer that there, there's this new constraint that policymakers are facing where 
you know, theoretically, if if we were all friends in the world and we could all trust one another, we would let the market decide, you know, this good is produced more efficiently over here because they have a greater supply of labor or access to raw materials. And this good is, you know, better produced over here. And then we can trade with one another and, you know, everything works out and we create a ton of value. And now we have to deal with this constraint of, you know, because people have been not behaving very well, can we really trust them? And so we, we're going to have to sort of onshore um, some strategic activities. And one one final question before we we end: in in a world where we're still glo very globalized, we still um, you know we still have a lot of trade going on with with our close allies, the United States and and uh, and the UK and and Japan and Taiwan. How, how do you think about Canada's comparative advantage relative to our close allies and what we could we could specialize in when it comes to reshoring some of these activities or boosting the supply side of our economy? Because we I don't think we need to produce everything in Canada. We can still rely on things to be produced abroad and, and strategic partners and then, and then trade with them. But where does, in your mind, Canada's comparative advantage lie that we should really be, be focusing on? Yeah, it's a brilliant framing and a, a brilliant question. I, let me just say a couple of things. First, you know, the way I've come to think about this continuum, um, Connor, is the default should be to let markets decide. And, you know, I, I don't have a percentage, but my, my instinct is that the vast majority of these types of decisions under this framework would continue to be left to market forces. Then the, the second point on the continuum is there will be some goods or products that we, we want to have reliable supply, but we don't necessarily need or can produce them within our borders. And so, you know, that will be, won't quite be the market in the sense that we'll prioritize certain sources of supply like allies or whatever. Um, but it's, we're not going to use public policy in order to, um, uh, be able to produce it at home. And then there's a third a third point on the continuum where you say this is so important that in effect, we're going to do whatever it takes using public policy levers to, to, to have this production at home. And, and I, I mentioned vaccine production. That strikes me as a good example of that third one, where even though, you know, you in theory could purchase it from the Americans or the Brits or, or some of these other allied countries, you know, in the event of a crisis, you probably want to have uh, some domestic capacity. So there's this sort of continuum, but I, I think it is worth emphasizing, even under, I, I don't want to sound like a radical, like even under my framework, I think the first one, leaving it to markets is still probably the vast majority, but up until now, it has been the entirety really of the way we've thought of about economic policymaking. And so that's the, the source of the, the change in thinking. In terms of where we might have value to contribute to a new global arrangement where, you know, we're all, particularly allied countries are prioritizing areas of comparative advantage and the sort of working together to protect ourselves from supply threats represented by China and Russia and others. Um, you know, critical minerals is obviously a great example where Americans want to produce electric vehicles. They have huge subsidies for the production of electric vehicles, um, something you've brilliantly written about. Right now, as I understand it, um, China has a, a dominant stronghold on a lot of the critical mineral inputs mm -hmm. to um, electric vehicle production. Canada has them as well. You know, this just strikes me as a logical place. Uh, I think food security is a big one. I think this is an area where Canada can play a, a really significant role um, uh, in the world in terms of helping to provide safe, reliable supply from a country that um, adheres to, you know, the best environmental and labor standards and so on. So. Uh, it's a very long way of saying, I think, you know, the answer is we need to think about these issues across this continuum and um, and then deploy public policy in a way that still permits markets to function as freely as possible, but within a, a, a framework that recognizes that in some cases, national interest or national security or however one describes it, ought to trump market forces. Sean, I think... I think that is a, a great way to wrap up our discussion. And, and I'd like to just end by saying thank you for joining us and, and being with us on Beyond the Headlines. 
it's always my pleasure and, and, and congratulations to, to you and the entire team, Connor, for, uh, you know, each week producing what I think is pound for pound the best uh, public policy oriented radio show and podcast um, in, in the country. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot. Uh, you've been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5. That wraps up our show for this week. We are joined by our guest and faculty advisor, Sean Spear. Many thanks to him for coming on the show to discuss his thoughts about Canada's labor shortage and the impending need to rebuild the supply side of our economy. Today's show was produced by myself, Connor Fraser. If you liked the episode, please like and review us wherever you're listening. The views expressed do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out podcasts of all our episodes on our website, www.beyondtheheadlines.net. And if you're a fan of the show and you want to stay up to date, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines.